How are we going? Good. Grab your seats. If you're new and visiting, my name's Brendan, and I'm part of the pastoral team here at Southern Grace. And if you are a visitor, I see there's a few from the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we just really would, we're so privileged that you would come and join us um, this morning and, and join us for our Sunday service. Like Dave said, uh, come and say hi. We'd love to meet you personally, so um, make sure you do introduce yourself to us this morning. Well, if you are new and visiting, we are in the middle of a series we're doing on Mark's Gospel. So I just invite you to uh, open up your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be reading this morning from verse 17 through to 31. And that's the, the story of the rich young man. Uh, this morning before I read this story, and I've just been burdened with this story all week, this passage of Scripture, um, because Jesus this morning is addressing specifically the rich. And we are rich. And you might not feel that you're rich, um, but we are in fact rich. You know, I'd read you uh, some statistics from the uh, 2013 Global Wealth Data Book from Credit Suisse. This is about net wealth and, and how that places you in the world. So when we talk about total wealth, that includes uh, shares, uh, property, car, superannuation, savings, home contents. If you own more than total net wealth, $10,000, you are in the top 30% of the world. That means you are richer than 70% of people in the world. More than $10,000. If you own more than $100,000 in total wealth, that places you in the top 8.4% of the world. And that's a lot of us here. That means you are richer than 91.6% of people in the world. If you own more than $1 million in total wealth, or you own your own home in Sydney, (laughs) that places you in the top 0.7% of the world. That means you are richer than 99.3% of people in the world. Friends, we are rich. We are filthy rich. And this passage, I believe, won't only challenge us this morning, but I believe deeply encourage us as well as we see Jesus' amazing words. So let's read, and then I'm going to pray for us as we get started. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, 
you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come with thanks before your throne. We thank you that you are the God who has saved us by your son Jesus, who has washed us clean by your blood. What cost, what sacrifice, Lord. And, and Lord, as we come before your throne this morning, before the throne of grace, we just, we just ask, Lord, help us to hear your word. Help us to understand it rightly, that we might be changed in light of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, this morning I wanted to begin with a story from just this week that was in the papers. I don't know if you read it. Uh, I want to read an account of it from The Guardian uh, entitled, Fisherman Hands in Giant Pearl He Kept Under the Bed for Ten Years. Uh, L. Hunt writes, A fisherman in the Philippines has kept what might be the largest natural pearl ever found hidden in his home for more than ten years. The enormous pearl is 30 centimetres wide and 67 centimetres long and weighs 34 kilos. If it is confirmed to have formed within a giant clam, as has been reported, it would likely be valued in excess of US $100 million. According to a report in the local Palawan News, a man from Puerto Princesa on Palawan Island found it more than a decade ago while out fishing. His boat's anchor caught on the giant clam and he had to swim down to dislodge it. He was not aware of its potential value, but kept it as a good luck charm. 
when he came to move to another part of the province, he entrusted it to his aunt, Eileen Amurao, who works in local government as a tourism officer. That's why he brought it to me, since it's quite heavy, she told the Guardian. With his permission, she offered the pearl to the mayor, Lucilio R. Bayon, to serve as a new tourist attraction of the city. It is now under display in the atrium of the new Green City Hall in Puerto Princesa. Her nephew had kept it under his bed as a lucky charm, she said. He said every time he goes out for fishing, and I love this, he will touch the pearl. (laughs) You know, it's an incredible story, isn't it? It's a story of this poor fisherman failing to realize he'd discovered an amazing treasure. You know, this priceless pearl, worth probably more than 130 million Aussie dollars, collecting dust under his bed. You know, this poor man probably continuing to risk his life as a fisherman, earning a meager salary, but actually one of the wealthiest, little beknownst to him, people in the whole of the Philippines. And yet, surprisingly, there are many parallels between this man's story and our story. You know, we too have a priceless treasure in our possession. And its value far exceeds the value of this pearl. And we too can fail to appreciate its true value. More than that, we can even forget it's in our possession. You know, we forget that we have unspeakable treasure in Christ. We forget that we have this beautiful hope for the future. We forget that we have a glorious inheritance in him. And we can busy ourselves chasing smaller treasures, working multiple jobs, longer hours, cutting back on giving, devoting ourselves to the successes of our children while our giant pearl, our great treasure, gathers dust, forgotten about, stored underneath the bed. This morning, all I want to do is I want to take that pearl out. I want to dust it off. And I want for us as a church to examine it afresh. I want us to see that pearl, which I believe lies in this text, glistening in the sun. I've entitled this morning's message, The Tragic Lesson of the Rich Young Man. I've got three very simple points, points that just follow the text. The first one will be the longest and the, uh, the, the second and third will be shorter. But my prayer for us this morning is that God would help us really to see afresh the treasure we have in Christ. Well, let's get stuck into the text and look at our first point, which is a lesson on our true condition. You know, the context of this passage is Jesus has been teaching right back since the very beginning of chapter 10 on the revolutionary values of the kingdom of God. You know, since 831, he's twice predicted his coming death and he's begun this march of his towards Jerusalem, equipping his disciples for life under the cross that's going to come along their way. And he's been teaching these revolutionary values, building towards his last passion prediction, which comes right at the end of this chapter. And he's been showing us this radical difference between the values of the disciples and the values of the kingdom of God. 
Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw the value of marriage, how something not prized by the disciples or the people in his time, but highly prized by Christ, highly precious to him. And last week, we saw the values of the kingdom, how it's received not in power and strength, but it's received like a child by simply coming helpless, helpless to him. And I thought Patrick did such a fantastic job of unpacking that for us last week. This week, Jesus is going to illustrate that point even further as he deals with this rich young man. So let's re-begin at the very beginning of our text, verse 17. Why don't you read that one, one more time with me again? Verse 17, we begin. And it says, As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. And he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this man comes and in humble gesture, he, he sprints towards Jesus, falls at his feet and makes a request. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that this is a young man. In Luke's gospel, we learn that he's a ruler of some, uh, of some sort. In Mark, later on in our passage, we learn that he's wealthy. He's a man of many possessions. This man is young. He's successful. He's influential. More than that, he's pious. He has it all together. And he comes to Jesus. And he's unusually positive in his opinion of Jesus. He comes with this humble gesture falling at his feet. Maybe he'd been listening in to Jesus' teaching from afar. Maybe he'd been growing in respect as he learned more and more stories about Jesus. But he falls at his feet in this sign of respect and he humbly makes what we can see as a genuine request of Jesus. He says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Despite his humble approach, already there's a problem. Can you see the problem in what he asks? He says, put another way, Jesus, what actions, what works, what deeds do I need to do to have eternal life? But Jesus sees right to the heart of this man. He sees to the core of his problems. And with the disciples looking on, he is out in this moment to instruct And so he turns the conversation right to the heart of the issue. Read with me verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, at first glance, it kind of seems like a strange thing to say to correct this guy, making a humble request. I mean, is it just semantics? I mean, what is Jesus going on about? Jesus sees the root problem. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus never denies that he is good. Or Jesus never denies as well that he's God. No, in fact, he's both. He's both good and he is God. Jesus in this moment is completely changing this man's perception of himself. He says, no one is good except God. Put another way. God is good. 
you are not good. This is the root issue. This man believes that he is good. He wants to know what final thing he needs to achieve to make it with God. He's asking, what must I do? Because he believes eternal life is within his grasp. And by definition, he is a self-righteous man. Look what Jesus says to him next. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus asks this man about a selection of six items from the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, uh, adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud or covet. Uh, Honor your parents. And this is not some sort of random list. The Savior in this moment is so intentional because these are all the commandments that relate to our treatment of other people. And the young man honestly says, yes, I've kept all these rules. You know, this passage, it really grieves me so much because this man, apart from reminding me of myself, reminds me of so many people in our neighborhood. You know, here in the North Shore, we're wealthy. We're well-educated. We have white-collar jobs. We, yeah, probably have the odd parking offense, but generally we're, we're good people. And, and I look through this list and I think, yeah, apart from a few little hiccups, by and large, yeah, murder, like, no, definitely not that one. Uh, adultery, no. Stealing, oh, well, you know, maybe. Uh, lying, well, no, not anything serious. Defrauding, not that I can think of. Honor your parents, did a pretty good job of that one. Um, if you ask people in this neighborhood, are you a good person? Most people say, yeah, of course, yeah, I'm a good person. But notice, this man isn't just a good person. This man is exemplary. He's more pious than me and probably most people here. And, and he says, all of these things I have kept. The question is, what's missing from this list? What has Jesus left out? And the answer is, Jesus has left out all the commandments that speak about love for God. In fact, he's left out the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this is the root of this man's problem, his love for God. And Jesus wants his disciples to see it. This man is a self-righteous man. But just let's look at how the Lord responds to him. Read with me verse 21. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that beautiful? A self-righteous man where maybe I would be prone to anger or or self-righteousness. In his wealth in his sincerity, in his piety, but in his self-deception and self-righteousness, the Savior's response is love. He looks right into the soul of this man and he loves him. What is the Lord's attitude towards the self-righteous rich, towards our neighbors? Love. It's love. Let's keep reading. And Jesus looking at him, 
loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The Savior sees right to the heart of this man. He sees that he loves and trusts in his riches more than God. This man is trusting in his righteous deeds and his personal riches, and he's not trusting in God. You see, rabbinic law forbade a person from giving away all their riches. Why? Well, in a society with no social security, the outcome would be that you would be helpless. Do you see what Jesus is saying? This is exactly what this, this man needs to do. He needs to come to Jesus as a child. He needs to come to him helpless. And Jesus sees his money, and he sees that it's leading him to fall away from him, and so he instructs him, cut it off. Be my disciple. And more than that, you can have me. I've come for you. I've come to give myself for you. And we see the most tragic of outcomes. This man walks away saddened because he loves his possessions more than Christ. It's a living illustration of the parable of the thorns. C.J. Mahaney puts it so well when he says, the deceitfulness of riches had their hands around this man's neck and they strangled him to death. This man was looking at the priceless pearl of Jesus Christ. God become man, the most priceless of treasures, but instead Tragically, he chose to keep his few small stones. This is the tragic lesson of the rich young man. Jesus was right in saying, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If he'd loved the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, he would have joyfully sold everything. And that's the point of this teaching moment. No one is good. Not even those you would think are best. Jesus first teaches his disciples about our true condition, that no one is good, not even those we hold in the highest esteem. And that brings us to our second point, which is a lesson on the power of God. You know, this passage comes with great weight to us, and I want us just to remember our wealth as we read these next few verses. Why don't you read with me as we pick up from verse 23 through to 26. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Church, hear these words. Hear these words in light of last week. Hear these beautiful words from the Savior. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, 
said to him, Then who can be saved? You know, the disciples are absolutely stunned by Jesus' words, but Jesus is determined to give them, and he repeats the, the message three times. They ask themselves the question, Who can be saved? If not this guy, then who can be saved? Let me read you a, a quote that describes uh, why the disciples had come to that place. It's from the famous uh, theologian R.T. France. He says, In Jewish society, it was generally taken for granted that wealth was to be welcomed as a mark of God's blessing. Rabbis like Hillel and Akiba, who rose from obscurity and poverty to wealth and influence, are commended without embarrassment. But this quite natural valuation is turned on its head by Jesus. You know, disciples were, were used to understanding that riches were a sign of God's blessing. And this guy is rich. He is blessed by God. More than that, he's rich and he's pious. Surely he would be first in line. What possible better recruit for the kingdom of God could there possibly be than this man? And Jesus says, it's so hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of God, to receive eternal life, that it's easier for a camel to be put through the eye of the needle. You know, church, some people have attempted to soften what Jesus is saying by uh, describing some... uh, potential gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle where uh, a a man could get off his camel and the camel could sort of unladen and do a funny walk through the gates, get through, but there's simply no evidence for that. And even if there was, it doesn't even fit with the passage. Jesus is describing the largest animal in Palestine, moving through the smallest hole conceivable. It's an impossible task, and that's the point. What, well, what is Jesus teaching us in this passage? What is the lesson here about? Well, a couple of things I just want to clarify before we look at what he is talking about, and that is what he's not talking about. He's not telling Christians to give away all their money because you can be poor and still not love God. Furthermore, he's not saying that it's sinful to be rich or that it's godly to be poor. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, I think, is two things. The first thing he's doing is he's warning us about the dangerous seduction of riches. Contrary to teaching, uh, some teaching in Christianity, wealth does not aid entrance into the kingdom of God. It hinders it. It makes it difficult. It is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus repeats it three times. Well, why does wealth provide such a challenge? Well, it hinders childlike faith in Christ. It breeds trust in self. It lures and entices us away from great treasure that is in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 24, for no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says again in Revelation 3.17 in his letter to the wealthy church of Laodicea, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's a warning about the dangerous seduction of riches, riches that breed self-reliance. You know, one of the the great blessings and challenges on the North Shore is our wealth. And if not checked, it ensnares. 
It leads to greed and idolatry. It leads to cold hearts that feel no need for God, that lose the helplessness that's required to enter the kingdom of God. And, and that's why as a pastoral team, we want to faithfully preach what the word says about giving and about generosity because of the dangerous seduction of wealth that is so strong in our city. Well, that's the first teaching here. It's a warning about the dangerous seduction of riches, but also, and even more so, it's a lesson about the saving power of God. Read with me verse 27. You know, friends, the whole of this passage hangs on verse 27. It says this, Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You know, everyone sitting here this morning, regardless of how you feel, is more wealthy than any of the people in Jesus' day could possibly have imagined. So difficult is the task of our salvation that it's impossible for any man to achieve, but not for God. More than that, he has achieved it. Isn't that a fantastic message? I mean, do you ever like me, you wish your testimony was a little bit more exciting? Like, does anyone have that feeling? Like, I grew up in a Christian family, uh, Christian parents. Uh, Yeah, I went through a little rebellious phase, and, you know, I can talk that up a little bit in my testimony because I kind of wish my testimony was a little more exciting. I don't know about you. Do you feel your testimony is a little bit boring? I mean, underneath that lies the assumption that I was only a mild sinner. And thus, it becomes evident And in many ways, I was similar to this rich man. This man, for as much as we know, who perished in his self-righteousness along with his riches. But hear this church. Christ saved me. Isn't that fantastic? Doesn't that give power to our stories to think that we were as dead as this rich young man with cold hearts towards God, trusting in our own empires, self-righteous and proud? Our task, our salvation, a task so great, it was 100% impossible for any man to achieve. And yet before the foundation of the world, God forknew me and he chose me. And he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that I failed to live. A heart full of love towards God. In place of my cold heart. And he marched towards the cross. And he hung on that cross and died my death in his place. And then he found me dead. And he raised me back to life. Why did he do it? Verse 18. Because no one is good except for God. 
Doesn't that make the treasure that's in Christ sparkle? You know, doesn't that, doesn't that make it seem again like a diamond in a rough to know that he rescued me to share in his inheritance? But more, doesn't that give faith to our evangelism? To think the hearts of people are so hard, but consider the power of God. Consider that I was just like them. You know, this passage fills me with gratitude when I realize that I am the rich man, but Christ saved me. Doesn't knowing his power to save me from the seduction of riches make him sparkle? Doesn't it highlight what a glorious treasure he is? Friends, in summary, Jesus highlights the dangerous seduction of riches, but also the all-surpassing power of God. He is an all-powerful treasure, able to save even the hardest heart. Finally, point three, a lesson on our great treasure. You know, ever since uh, chapter 8, 34, Jesus has been calling people to brandish the message of the cross and follow him. And I just want to look at the amazing encouragement he now gives for us as we seek to do it. Read with me uh, verse 28 through to 30. Peter began to say to him, and I love this, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. You know, I love what Peter says here. He's like, Jesus, but what about our sacrifices? We've left everything to come after you. And, and Jesus then pauses to explain how following him is not all cost. No, in fact, there is scandalous benefit. You know, I'm not very good at maths. But I just love the way Jesus does maths in this passage. It's not just whatever loss for my sake you have, I'll get it back to you. No, Jesus says, I'll get it back to you a hundredfold and more. If you give up owning a home for my sake, for the gospel, Jesus says, I'll return a hundredfold now and you'll have treasure in heaven. If you lose a relationship with your brother or sister for my sake, for the gospel, I'll return a hundredfold in brothers and treasures in heaven. Well, if you're like B, you're probably sitting here and thinking, well, how is this possible? I don't know many Christians with a hundred homes or a hundred mums. I'm not even sure I'd want a hundred mums. <laughs> Two's great. Well, firstly, Jesus is talking about blessings in and through the church. He would build upon these men. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, as you come to me like a child, as you come helpless, as you come dependent, not only will you enjoy the return of your losses in the welcome of a hundred homes, in the care of a hundred mums in my household, 
Not only will you experience the sweet blessing of my presence and care in this life, but you will also enjoy the unspeakable riches of eternal life with me. And Jesus is trying to lift our eyes to see the fullness of treasure we have in him, and isn't it glorious? You know, the tragic lesson of the rich young man is that he thought he was getting robbed. He thought it was a terrible deal. He didn't realize the glorious pearl that was set before him. A treasure so immense it renders his possessions as but tiny stones or flecks of coal. You see, knowing this great treasure we have in Christ, it should have a motivating effect on us, shouldn't it? You know, uh, Kent Hughes, a famous uh, preacher, he says, it should lead us to divest and invest. It should lead us to divest, to divest of our dependence on wealth. You know, I'm guessing that, that some of us here, like me, felt immediate relief when we saw that Jesus isn't commanding us to give away all our possessions. But why is that? I put to you, it's because we love our stuff. And we often depend on it. You know, uh, the theologian R.H. Gundry says this quote, and it's so provoking. He says that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions. Gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. (laughs) I don't know what to say in response to that. But it's true, isn't it? We are a people prone to dependence on our wealth. You know, we need to make it our constant prayer that, that Jesus would lift our eyes to the great treasure that he is, to break our trust in our wealth, that we would come to him helpless, dependent, needy. We may need to make it our constant prayer that we would divest of dependence in wealth, but not just divest, to invest in the kingdom as well. You know, Jesus wants to enlarge our vision of the glory that awaits us. He wants us to see that our greatest treasure is not our bank balance or the value of our property, but it's him. It's the glorious inheritance that's being stored in heaven for you. The dollars you have in your account now will be yours probably for the next 70 years at most. The account you have in heaven, it'll never end. Your home, your car, your holidays, if you're really honest, it doesn't satisfy you for long. But your heavenly treasure is a joy unceasing. Investing in property might give you a small return for a few years, but heavenly investment returns throughout eternity. Verse 31, Jesus says there's a day coming when there will be a great reversal. What is stored in heaven will be revealed and what is stored on earth will perish. On that day, church, will we be poor or will we be rich? It's so easy to think about giving in terms of what I can get away with giving to God. And, you know, I imagine in a room this size there are people who are in practice are giving very little to God. Maybe you're saving for a deposit. Maybe you're renovating your home. Maybe you're putting the kids through private school or building the retirement portfolio. Maybe you're busy with a million different things so that you have little time and little energy to give to God. When you see the treasure you have in Christ, you quickly realize you don't need more treasure here. 
Friends, invest your all in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants you to see unspeakable treasure that you have in Christ. Rid yourself of the dangerous seduction. Reap a hundredfold return. Store up treasures in heaven with eternity to enjoy them. Don't be like the fisherman who stored the treasure under his bed, failing to see its worth. Don't be like the rich man who thought his possessions were more precious than the glories of Christ. Well, in closing, the tragic lesson of the rich young man we've seen is that the Savior teaching his disciples the treasure that is to be found in him. That no one is good, not even those we hold in the highest esteem. That our efforts to save ourselves are in vain, but his power is able to overcome even the heart most hardened by riches and self-reliance. That he is a glorious treasure and that eternity awaits. I hope this morning you've seen fresh the treasure we have in Christ. Why don't I pray for us? Lord, this morning we want to pause and we want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that it's a powerful word. It's a two-edged sword that cuts through. Lord, we thank you this morning for addressing us as your church. Lord, thank you for saving us as rich people, that you plucked us out of dependence on riches and, and, and adopted us into your kingdom. Thank you for softening our hard hearts, leading us to trust in you, Lord. Lord, I just pray that this morning we would have seen your treasure sparkle, that we would have seen you. Lord, help us to live with our eyes firmly fixed on you until you call us home. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.